0: Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, and if you'd stand with me in honor of God's word. Revelation 19. Look at 6. Says then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd, or the roar of a mighty ocean waves, or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to Him for the time has come, for the wedding feast of the Lamb and His Bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words that came from God. Father in heaven, we thank you today that there is gonna be a wedding feast to end all feasts. And all of the saints are gonna be gathered together on that day. Father God, show us how we can be sure to make that feast. Father God, show us how we can sure to be among that number. Father God, I thank you that even today you're inviting many to come to that feast. Father, meet us here today. I pray your word would come alive to us. We'd see what we've never seen before, receive what we've never received before. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. You can be seated. For those of you that haven't been with us, we're on the last leg of our three-part series, Here Comes the Bride. In the previous two parts, we've looked at the significance of marriage from the beginning in Genesis. Remember how we talked about one of the very first things that God instituted was marriage. Right there in Genesis chapter 2, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and he'll cleave or be joined or united to his wife. Marriage was instituted. Marriage was instituted before family. Marriage, Marriage was instituted before the church was instituted. Marriage was instituted. One man, one woman in the book of Genesis. We've also looked at the significance of marriage in the New Testament regarding Christ and the church. Today... I want to look at the reason behind it all. Because anytime we are in a wedding ceremony, please know that that is a small picture of a much larger picture that's going to happen. A wedding to end all weddings, a wedding feast to end all wedding feasts. And so today, I want to look at the wedding feast of the Lamb. I want to look at what the church needs to do in preparation for that great day. The Message Bible says in Revelation nineteen seven, the marriage of the Lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready. How many of you know that Jesus is returning for a bride, not a girlfriend, not for a fling, not for an affair? He's returning for a bride, and his wife has made herself ready. And so there seems to be something that we are responsible for. But Pastor John, hasn't God paid the price for it all? Yes, he has. And we're going to look at that today. But there's still, there's still a response that's needed on our part. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a runaway bride. I want to be at that altar on that day. I don't want to miss out. I don't, want to miss out. I don't want to miss out on that feast. Good grief, I'm Polish. I'm not going to miss out on a feast. And so um, I'm going to be there. And there are some things that we need to do. And so if you're ready, let's go for it. Notice the bride is given the finest of pure white linen to wear. We know from Revelation 19 verse 7 that the bride prepared herself, but then it says she was given linen to wear. Don't dismiss that. She was given linen to wear. Where else are you going to find language consistent with this? Well, let's go back to our our wedding chapter in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, and I want to draw your attention to some scriptures that maybe you've read and maybe you haven't noticed them before, or if you've ever been to a wedding that I've done, I've read these verses. I want to draw your attention to some things and show you just how awesome our God is. Look at Ephesians 5, 25, 26, and 27. You're gonna find some consistency here. It says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Wow, there's a responsibility, huh, He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washing by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself, as a glorious church, without a spot, or wrinkle, or any other blemish, instead, she'll be holy and without fault. I love the, the transition that's made. We're talking about a husband and a wife, and all of a sudden, now we're talking about Jesus and the church. And so, all of the things that are said about husbands and wives here apply to Jesus and the church. Notice that Jesus gave himself for the bride and presents her to himself, a glorious church. It blows my mind, these things, if you read it and if you're thinking about it. He, he, he gave himself for the church, and the reason why he did it was so that he could present the church to himself one day. Jesus provided everything. He, he washes the bride with the water of the word, he provided everything for the bride, everything for the bride. He gave the bride what to wear. He, he, he gave himself for the bride so that he could present the bride to himself. Jesus provided everything, everything. And all he asks is a right and a proper response for all that he's done, if you accept what he's done. And so what would that response be? Well, let's go a little bit deeper, and go to the book Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Let's go after some stuff. Can, can we speak intimately today? Let's do that today. Song of Songs. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, yeah. It says, this is Solomon's Song of Songs more wonderful than any other. Kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. How pleasing is your fragrance. Your name is like the spreading fragrance of scented oils. No wonder all the young women love you. Take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. How happy we are for you, O king. We praise your love even more than wine. How right they are to adore you." Well, Pastor John, clearly this is, it's a story, it's an allegory. It's, you know, it's, it's Solomon and one of his many wives here, and she must have been quite special for him to write an entire book about her. I want you to understand that this isn't just a story. In fact, early Jewish rabbis said, may there be an anathema or a curse on anyone that calls this a story or an allegory. This is more than the account of a king and one of his wives. This is an account of the king of kings and his bride. And so the language used here is a very intimate language that would be used in speaking of a husband and a wife. It's now used of Jesus and the church. And it's quite graphic. You had to be a certain age as a Jewish boy to even be allowed to read this stuff. It's quite graphic. But God wants to be intimate with us. Wants to be intimate with us. And if you're asking me, I believe he's always trying to bring us into his bedroom. He's always trying to bring us to a place of intimacy. And so let's look closely at some of these verses here because we're going to derive some great meaning. First of all, did you know that one of the meanings of the word worship is to bow and to kiss? That worship is a language of intimacy. It might be difficult for you to enter in to worship because, you know, Pastor John, I'm just not that, that touchy, that feely kind of person. I think every human being desires intimacy. I believe God has put it into our DNA to be intimate. And God is no different. He wants to be intimate with us. And throughout Scripture, if you're looking for it, there is language, intimate language, that speaks of God's relationship with his people. In fact, he speaks often in sexual terms. If you'll read the Old Testament, you'll see him talk about Israel prostituting themselves with other gods, playing the harlot with other gods. And the language seems so graphic and so sexual, and yet it's spiritual all at the same time because sex is spiritual. And God's taking the most intimate thing that two human beings could ever do together, and he's trying to communicate the kind of intimate relationship he wants with us. He's a God that wants to have such moments with you that it's as if you're kissing him in worship. So grateful for him that you're bowing in worship as many of you were this morning already. We know that God wants us to worship Him. John 9:31 tells us that God doesn't hear sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does His will, he hears them. So we know that God hears worshipers. We know from John 4: 24 that Jesus said the father is seeking such to worship him. So who's the father looking for? He's looking for worshipers. Who does the father listen to? Worshipers. So he wants us to worship him. And there's plenty of scripture to support that, and I'm just touching just a few. Notice the pleasure at just the mention of the bridegroom's name. Notice the, 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 the bridegroom has a fragrance And notice that the bridegroom has a bedroom. So let me just say say this about intimacy. I believe with all my heart that Jesus loves the bride and he wants to be intimate with her, but I believe you come to know God publicly, but the depths of intimacy are more discovered privately. Does that make sense? So I'm not trying to air my spiritual bedroom out in public. And whenever that does happen, and it does, I think it can be awkward at times. Because it seems like people are making out with God in public. And I think that more often than not, that's reserved for privacy. Well, Pastor John, there are instances in Scripture, you're going to find a consistency in Scripture that... In moments of great public displays of affection for God, it was usually in the case of restoration, healing, a recovering of that which was lost, salvation. Yes, I believe that you can come to know God publicly, but I believe the greater parts of intimacy are explored privately which I think is what Scripture is talking about here when it speaks of the king's chamber or the king's bedroom. I believe God wants you all alone to himself. Something's wrong when we're always trying to air our spiritual bedroom out in public and we have very little going on privately with God. And isn't it amazing that Scripture says that God, when he sees what's done in secret, will reward you openly? Because a real relationship isn't a relationship that everyone can see. The strength of a real relationship is where people cannot see or shouldn't be allowed to see. I can remember years ago when Angelina Jolie was dating Billy Bob Thornton and they were trying to interview him and she was kissing all over his face and and he was trying to talk and being interviewed. And I'm I'm thinking that relationship is never going to make it. Because they're airing it all out in public. When you're airing it all out in public, you must not have much going on privately. And so, do I think that there are moments where people cannot help themselves in God's presence? Yes, I, I really do. But I think the greater display of our affection for God should not be where everyone can see. It should be in the king's chamber when you are all alone with him. Does that make sense? And I'm sure you could cite instances and cases and you saw this and you saw that. But I think the better part of intimacy is done in private. The better part of intimacy is done in private. More relationships begin publicly but grow privately. If it makes sense in the natural, I think it would make sense in the spiritual. And it's not that I'm opposed to people worshiping God, you know, with with great fervor. It's not that I'm opposed to that at all. But I'm thinking what's begun here has got to continue in private. We need to have it going going on in private. The strengths of our marriages and our relationships, it's more one-on-one. Where everybody cannot see. I'm not trying to sell something. I'm not trying to trying to convince you of how healthy my marriage is by making out with my wife in public. The immature do that. The teenagers in the in the hallways, if the teachers permit it, they do that. And it's awkward. That should not be happening. Those kids playing tonsil hockey right there in the hallway while kids are walking to class. That should not be happening. What in the heck are you doing? Well, they've seen it somewhere. And I think it's, it's kind of, when, when people do things like that in public, it's, they're kind of like dogs marking their territory. I want everybody to know that this one's mine. And everybody that's walking by is thinking, you can have them. And they are all yours. Enjoy. So there is a depth and an intimacy to the love of God for us. Go to Song of Songs, chapter 5. And let's look at some of this. Is it okay that I say these things? I'm sure you got opinions too, but I'm all mic'd up and you're not. So, um, Song of Songs, look at chapter five. Notice the language here. Keep in mind, we're talking about the Lord. I slept, but my heart was awake when I heard my lover knocking and calling. You ever heard that before? Revelation chapter 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens up the door. Open to me, my treasure, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. But I responded, I've taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? I've washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? My lover tried to unlatch the door, and my heart thrilled within me. I jumped up to open the door for my love and my hands dripped with perfume. My fingers dripped with lovely myrrh as I pulled back the bolt. I opened to my lover, but he was gone. My heart sank. I searched for him, but I could not find him anywhere. I called to him, but there was no reply. Maybe you found that the king comes at times that are inconvenient for you. Maybe you have found that God wants to experience moments of spontaneous intimacy with you. Again, notice that it's just the two of them, and this is a private setting. Also notice that there is a door that needed to be opened so that the king could come in. I believe that door depicts our hearts, and we choose to excuse, we choose to push away, or we choose to open up so that the king of glory can come in. Maybe even in worship this morning, the presence of God was falling. It was glorious. No wonder why David spoke of the beauty of his holiness, or if you look it up, it means the delightfulness of God's presence. He had to be around it as much as he could. As great as David's sins were, his passion for God was even greater. And maybe the presence of God was falling and you didn't know what to do with it. What do I do with this? You open up and you respond so that the king of glory can come in. You let him in. You allow him entrance. You open up your heart's door and say, God, you can have me. I won't withhold myself from you. I'll give you all my heart. You can have me. I'm not ashamed and I'm not embarrassed of you. If you're not embarrassed or ashamed of me and you let him in and you let him in and you let him in Notice that by the time the bride makes up her mind to let the king in, he's gone. God is always the initiator. God's always the pursuer. We're the responder. Remember, he's the bridegroom and we're the bride. And the groom is the initiator. He's the pursuer. He's the chaser. He's the chaser. And he's always coming after you and wanting to spend time with you, but oh, the game's on. I, my favorite show is, is on, I, I, uh, uh, okay, where are you? Well, you were, Lord, you were just here a minute ago pulling on my heart. But I'm tired, I don't want to get up. But he comes calling nonetheless and you know that it's him. He comes at a time that's not convenient because he wants to spend time with you and he can get you all alone he wants to know that he's more important than all these other things. You can get the rerun. You can go on YouTube. You can get it. You can catch up on that sleep later. Isn't it amazing that many, many times the strongest calls come from God at the most inconvenient times for us? It's almost like Jesus, after he rose from the dead, was saying, do you love me more than these? To Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? And you choose to respond. What have we placed between ourselves and God? Relationships here? Money? Achievements? Possessions? What is it that could be more important to us than God that we find ourselves enjoying? And God has absolutely no problem with you having stuff. Abraham was wealthy, Isaac was wealthy, Jacob was wealthy. God doesn't have a problem with you being blessed. He's the blesser. Bible says God gives you the power to get wealth. He just doesn't want wealth getting you. He wants you. He wants you. He has no problem blessing you. Has no problem at all blessing you. But he wants you. He wants to be your first love. Wants to be your first love. What is God always playing second fiddle to? Your schedule? What's he always playing second fiddle to? Why does it always seem like God comes calling at a time that is so inconvenient for you? Like, God, do you not know? Can't you see that I'm in the middle of something? And it's almost like the Lord saying, can't you see that I want to be the middle of what you're in the middle of? I love chapter five. I believe as we hesitate, we miss out on the intimacy that we could have had with him. And I believe more than anything, God wants to be intimate with us. Go to Song of Songs, chapter 8. Look at 6 and 7. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. The love of God is jealous. The love of God is like a fire. Nothing can quench the love of God. Nothing can quench the love of God. And to confirm that, Let's finish by going to Romans 8. Romans 8. You guys still with me? All right, you're quiet out there. 35, 835. I'll read 35 through 39. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us? If we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death, And yet many people are like that when they go through tough times. God must not love me. God, where are you? Scripture says nothing can separate us from the love of God. It goes on, as the scriptures say, for your sake, we're killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Why does it say past tense? loved us like he doesn't love us now? No, it's referring to the cross and the price that he paid. No greater display of love than when Jesus died on the cross for us. It says, And I am convinced, Paul now resolute, that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So here is my challenge for you, my questions for you this morning. I realize you're sitting in church. I realize that we're reading the Bible together today. But do you feel... Like God doesn't love you. Or only on some days, you know, he loves you. As if he has some kind of lapse, momentary lapse and little forgetfulness. God forgets about you. Overlooks you because you've been overlooked in life. Maybe you weren't the most significant member in your family and you seemed to get overlooked. Maybe the black sheep, maybe you were a little overlooked. And so God must treat you like that because you've been treated like that in this life. And so God must be like that. Your earthly father was like that, and so your heavenly father's got to be like that. Well, Pastor John, I don't think that my heavenly father is like my earthly father, but yet we respond to him that way. We respond to God like he's going to respond towards us or act towards us like our earthly dad did. Our earthly dad, if he was passive or he, if he was controlling or like Pastor Dan said earlier, that God's up there with a great big huge fly swatter just waiting to smack us when we, when we do wrong. He created you. He knows you do wrong. And yet, Jesus loves us so much that Romans chapter 5 tells us he died for us while we were yet sinners. That's how much he loves us. Man, he didn't wait for us to get right. He was the right that we get. And we respond. We respond to what Jesus did on the cross, believing that he didn't just die for those that were alive on the earth at the time, that he died for all who were afar off, for all who were yet to be born. For you, for me, for all humanity, Jesus died. And being God, he could do that. And we either accept that or or we don't. Pastor John, like God, could love everyone. If he created everyone, he can love everyone. Pastor John, like God is really going to be there for us. My Bible says he's an ever-present help in times of trouble. Where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord. Do you trust that he's really going to help you when you need it the most? Or are you going to take matters in your own hands and make another mess that God's going to somehow fix and God's going to somehow mend? Why Why does God always got to be mending the nets? Why can't he be the net? Why can't he be the foundation and the strength of your life? Why does he need to momentarily come in and out of your life because you momentarily seem to come in and out of his? Why has it got to be based on your terms? Why does it got to be based on your thinking? Why does it got to be based on your feelings? Why does it got to be that way? I just want to tell you something in God's presence in view of all these witnesses that it will never be our way. That he is the king. That he is the king. And the standards have been set. The love has been extended. And it is our decision and our choice whether or not we're going to receive what God has done. We're all flawed. All of us are flawed. We're all flesh. All of us are flesh. And I try to be real careful not to overly examine somebody else's because I don't want them overly examining mine. We all come to God broken. We all come to God fractured. Bible says we are like jars of clay. But we come to him nonetheless because he loves us, because he died for us, because he paid a price for us, our sins that we never ever could in 100 million years. Yet we come to him. And it isn't about God making us perfect. It's about us pursuing the one who is. It's not about God righting every wrong. That's our justice. God will handle all of that. We come to him. We simply come. We simply come. And he gives us a new life in exchange for our old. He gives us the linen to wear. He presents us to himself. He is all in all. He's all that you'll ever need. That's why David could say in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He was in want of nothing. Nothing. Do you think that all of that pursuit is on you and none on him? God, when are you pursuing? He's chasing you right now. Coming after you hard right now. Because he's got your attention right now here in church. Coming after you. Coming after you now hard after you now, loving on you right now, trying to reveal himself to you right now is coming after you. Yours is the response. There's no price you pay. The response is an open heart. Lord, please come. Take all of me, forgive me. Yours is the response to what's been done. Jesus' work on the cross was a finished work. When he said, it is finished, it meant it is finished. It's completed. It's done. Jesus didn't leave anything out on the cross, did not see the 21st century coming and left a few things out. Jesus saw it all. Start to finish, beginning the end. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Yours and my response is to open up our hearts and to let him in. To surrender all to his kingship, to his lordship and to bow and to kiss him as often as repeatedly as we possibly can and to explore the depths of an intimate relationship with the living God when we're all alone with him as he's often trying to get us to be alone with him, alone with him. That relationship can begin publicly but the better part of it is gonna be eked out and carved out when we're all alone with him. Do you love him when it's convenient for you? Yet, many times he comes calling when it's not. And then finally, do do you really know him? Were you raised around him? Maybe had moments where you felt his presence, but there was no real commitment, no all in on your part. I mean, you might be here because of a loved one, You might be here because of a tradition that you've been raised in, but have you really, really committed to him? Are you really all in? Or are you only gonna be all in if you're sure that God's gonna make all of these things work out for you? Man, I can't find anywhere in Scripture where God promises us happiness, but he promises us joy. And it's another worldly joy. Joy. I can't find anywhere in Scripture where God promises that every night's going to be peaceful, but he promises us a peace that passes all understanding. Promises us that joy will come in the morning after a hard night. And you can only know these things if you know him. I don't picture God being up there with some great big huge ladle that just drips every once in a while, something on us. I think you completely surrender to him and you enjoy the blessings of a relationship with the living God. Not based on your works, your efforts, your perfection, based on the love that he's displayed on the cross for us. We embrace that and we begin with him. And I want to be able to pray with you before we go today. So could you close your eyes